we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Carol Kuntz, who is the author of our latest CSIS report, Genomes, the Era of Purposeful Manipulation Begins. It's a great report. Carol teaches at Georgetown and conducts research at CSIS. She received her doctorate from MIT, worked at the Department of Defense and at the White House on technology, homeland security, and defense issues. So with that, uh, over to the interview. Carol, congratulations on finishing. It's really great work. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about on the podcast today. Why don't you start by telling us, start with the title, and then tell us what's in it. Well, the report is called Genomes, the Era of Purposeful Manipulation Begins. And honestly, it the title just comes from, I was involved in a series of meetings about cutting edge biotechnologies. And what I took away as the bottom line was what the title is, i.e. that we've had a convergence of technologies that enables this purposeful manipulation of genomes. And so the title is basically my takeaway from a lot of you know, research and, and meetings and briefings that I've been involved in over the last couple of years. So when you say purposeful manipulation, what is it, what does it mean? That's what's really, I think, remarkable about this convergence of technologies. It's really the convergence of three technologies. So first, mm -hmm. biosequencing, which was basically, you know, an advance in the early part of the 21st century, where you can by DNA sequencing, you can identify the order of the genome, of a human genome, for example. But genomes are, a DNA is the blueprint of all living things. And so now we can sequence it with a high degree of precision. A more recent innovation that I think folks will uh, recognize from just having been in the newspaper and in magazines is something called CRISPR-Cas. And what that is, is basically two chemists discovered a age-old technique that bacteria use to fight off viruses. And basically what it does is it enables them to identify a precise part of the DNA and then make a precise edit to that exact point. And so when it's repurposed for research purposes, it enables this very precise editing of DNA. So this enables genomic manipulation, but the key additional technology that makes it purposeful manipulation comes out of machine learning algorithms. You know, the human DNA has about 3.2 billion base pairs. And so if you could imagine being asked to compare the genome of somebody with a form of cancer and the genome of somebody without, you know, trying to do that by hand is basically impossible. But with machine learning, 
it's extremely good at making these kinds of fine grain comparisons, even with a database of a 3.2 billion or even, frankly, hundreds of human genomes. So, you know, 3.2 billion times hundreds of genomes. And so machine learning algorithms are terrific at identifying the which gene should be changed to achieve which different characteristic in the resulting organism. So it's really the convergence of these three technologies, DNA sequencing, CRISPR-Cas, and machine learning algorithms, which enables this purposeful manipulation or the uh, manipulation of the precise gene to yield an organism with a particular desired characteristic. Now, I hope we can come back and talk more about CRISPR because it's gotten a lot of attention recently. People have started waking up to the potential, both good and bad. And that's a lot of what the report covers. So, yes. I, you know, I don't know if you want to start there or we can talk a little bit more about the other cutting edge tech. I mean, you, you pick. How about why you see the pluses and the minuses of this new technology? I think this technology is is quite astonishing. And I think one of the reasons why I think it's so important to do a report on it is because I think, you know, when you wander into the world of, you know, biotechnologists and, and the folks who really work in this high-end technology, they're, you know, aware of the incredible implications it has for many different domains in society. But I really think that message has not gotten over into the policy community. So it's one of these sort of classic problems where the technology and the advances in the technology are really outpacing the policy debate. And so many of the implications of this technology are, you know, profoundly mm -hmm. meaningful for society. And so one of the things I hope that this report will do is make more people aware of these remarkable advances and aware that we really are at a juncture point where you know, society needs to, just to, to create a policy framework so that we can use these technologies in ways that are consistent with our values. So, you know, a couple ways in which these technologies can be remarkable you know, as I said, DNA is basically the blueprint for all living organisms. And so you can think of, of you know, just molecules can be purposefully uh, manipulated. And there's a really incredible opportunity just developing useful molecules or genetically modified molecules to perform particular useful functions. McKinsey Global Institute, which, you know, as you know, is sort of a famous consultancy estimates that these useful molecules can form a multi-trillion dollar annual industry. So this has huge opportunity. These molecules can render toxic chemicals inert, and that's obviously a very persistent problem. There's a kind of molecule that can fluoresce if it's near the effluence of landmines. You know, and as you know, in Africa or other areas where there have been a lot of landmines seeded in the area, locating the landmines, then removing them is a huge challenge. So this is a very useful molecule. The, the, this molecule could be adjusted to fluoresce around other kinds of effluents. 
And so there's lots of things you can think of that it would be useful to have a molecule to sense. Certainly in the defense domain, we like to, you know, there's all kinds of potential purposes for it there. Maybe sensing fissile material, maybe sensing the effluence from biomaterials. But you can also think of it in a non-defense domains where these things could be useful. Uh, it also can help with some climate mitigation issues. It can create plastics that don't rely on petroleum precursors. Um, and it can help with some critical raw material problems. Like you can uh, distill lithium from coal ash. So, you know, I think there's, it's an, it has an important uh, economic promise. And it holds really great promise to help solve some societal issues like toxic chemicals and like climate remediation. So useful molecules are an important example of how purposeful manipulation can, can help with a lot of public policy problems. But also you can think of a lot of other things that can be purposely manipulated. There's a tremendous promise in the area of therapeutics, for example, you know, our ability to rapidly configure a vaccine to a newly emerged pathogen is greatly facilitated by this technology. And that probably sounds like a familiar problem to folks after COVID-19 and all the various variants of it. Uh, these, this technology was helpful in uh, that struggle. Uh, but then sort of moving toward things that are more, that still hold great promise but that do kind of are more resonant with um, moral issues is the ability to, to, first of all, you can edit individuals. And this is sometimes referred to in scientific literature as legitimate heritable human genome editing. So there are there's a class of genetic disease that is quite serious and that we have no way of treating with current technology. And so this technology holds great promise for treating these terrible diseases. And so that's quite important and valuable. But it is also possible, as we look to the future, to edit other aspects of human embryos. And in many scientific studies have characterized those uses for enhancements as illegitimate. So we may all look at those things and say they're illegitimate but they are increasingly technically possible. And so somewhat analogous to nuclear weapons, which you know, many, you know, in some ways we may regret they were invented, but they were invented. And what we have been left with is trying to build a policy framework that deters their use. We find ourselves with another technology that has many beneficial purposes, many more than I think nuclear has turned out to have, many beneficial purposes, but there are some genuine risk. And so that's why we need to configure the policy framework in the United States and in the international community more broadly to really benefit from the promise and minimize the risk. Tell us what the policy framework would look like. I know somewhere in the report you mentioned developing norms, but... Start with the internet. What would a national policy framework look like? And then how do we translate that into something international? So I think there's several things that the United States needs to do. You know, I think it's, it's critical for national security, but also, frankly, for strategic reasons, by which I mean the economic health, technological health, public health 
of uh, the United States to have a healthy domestic sector in these technologies. And I think we, we are not on that trajectory. And, and given how important these technologies are, I think that's extremely worrisome. So I lay out sort of three important areas where the United States, I think, needs to change its policy framework. The first is with regard to these heritable human genome editing. That was my next question. <laughs> the second <clears throat> is with regard to databases. I think there has not yet been a recognition of their strategic importance in this era of artificial intelligence. And we really need to facilitate the creation of databases. And finally, I do think we need to build up our broad infrastructure to build these kinds of useful molecules. So let me walk through each of these. Mm -hmm. So first, with regard to heritable human genome editing, you know, th this is a very, you know, I mean, frankly, it's a shocking capability and, and, and one that I think folks do need to think hard about. On the other hand, there's no avoiding that it exists, however much we might wish that it did. Uh, two, I'm sorry? Sickle cell anemia. I mean, if we could cure that, it might be worthwhile. Well, cystic fibrosis. Yeah, that another would be, one. Uh, but, but let me make a distinction here, which you're <laughs> alluding to. There have been two children born that are the only known examples of genetically manipulated embryos that were brought to term. And those were two children that were born in China in 2018. And when this was announced, it you know, it really brought down the opprobrium of the entire, you know, global life science community, mm -hmm. including, it should be noted, in China. This researcher had done this work privately in, in, in his lab, but there's a broad view in the life science community at present that embryos should not be genetically manipulated and uh, brought to term until we're sure we fully understand whether or not their risk of off-target effects when CRISPR-Cas is used to manipulate the embryo. So the first step, uh, which I think is broadly agreed, is that we've got to make sure we're not going to cause unintended errors to the human embryo. That could yield, you know, just just horrible outcomes. And so we've got to make sure that we understand the off-target effects of CRISPR-Cas. Once that's been resolved, several elite scientific studies have suggested there's a meaningful distinction between legitimate and illegitimate heritable human genome editing. And as you alluded to, they argue that for serious diseases like cystic fibrosis, for which there's, you know, which are genetic in origin, for which there's no other treatment, and which are very serious, you know, they argue that they should be considered that that would be an appropriate use to edit a human embryo implanted in its mother and have it come to term. Cystic fibrosis, as you might know, is, is a very debilitating disease. It's extremely painful, and most people die uh, who have the disease die in their 20s or 30s, and there is no other treatment for it. But these studies go on to say that any edits to an embryo's gene that was purely for the purposes of enhancement would be illegitimate. 
And so these are theoretically enhancing, you know, height or strength or attractiveness or athleticism. Mm -hmm. And so they say edits for the purposes of enhancements would be illegitimate. So I, you know, obviously these scientific studies, while their members are very well respected, you know, don't dictate national policy. But I, I think these are good recommendations. And I am very troubled because at present, the US legal framework would not allow this kind of work to go forward in the main research venues in the United States. And I, you know, would urge the, 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 you know, the country and the Congress to look at this. And I think we should proceed within the main research venues and under the very well-developed and careful oversight of uh, experiments on humans to proceed first to make sure that we really understand the off-target effects and then to permit legitimate human heritable genome editing in major research venues in the United States. But I, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think most people accept a legitimate, illegitimate distinction. Well, We'd have to refine it. But, but I worry that people will cheat. I think cheating is inevitable. I, I, perhaps others would not share that view, and I you know, welcome others to come to the view. But the, the, the effort in 2018 was essentially undetected. The He Zhenqing, who was the Chinese researcher who did this in 2018, his efforts were not externally noteworthy and you know, were not uh, generating external observables. And I, you know, if you look at other arms control or non-proliferation agreements, there generally is, a, is an effort to identify techniques for on-site verification or activities that would be related to cheating that would generate observables that perhaps national technical means or other sophisticated monitoring devices could detect. My read of it, and I you know, welcome others to make their own assessment, is that those things are not gonna be present in this case. The technology is already widely diffuse and it's not very expensive. So I think, you know, I don't think there's a meaningful prospect to assure there would not be cheating. I do though recommend, and the report explains this reasoning, that even as the United States permits legitimate heritable human genome editing to be pursued in the context of its own research venues, the US government, the US State Department, the US technical community should work with its allies abroad to build up international norms against illegitimate human heritable genome editing. I think this is worth doing despite the persistent risk of cheating because you can, I think you can get some benefits in these sort of expert-driven areas. You know, there are very strong norms in the life science community against this kind of manipulation. I think it would, uh, if you built up international norms, it would reduce the risk of cheating, particularly in labs with low, relatively low technical skills, which might be the labs where you're most likely to have errors. I think that because the uh, life science elite would support 
these uh, prohibitions against cheating. They would use things like you know, publishing in elite journals, elite postdocs as techniques to enforce it. Now, should this give anybody any comfort that a a considered national program is not proceeding with what we would consider to be illegitimate human heritable genome editing? I think we shouldn't. I mean, I fundamentally have a national security expert, and I think we shouldn't. And Uh, So I think there's a benefit in building these international norms, but I also think that's why it's essential that the United States proceed to develop its technical expertise in legitimate heritable human genome editing. This is going to sound a little bit like Clone Wars, but, (laughs) you know, suppose you were a military power and you had the opportunity to create soldiers with greater strength, greater endurance, faster reflexes, better vision, greater tolerance to pain. Wouldn't that be attractive, really some of it attractive? Well, I think it would be attractive. Again, that's why I think it's essential that the United States, within the biotechnology community, within its main research venues, pursue legitimate heritable human genome editing. There's a number of technical complexities that are likely to confront this theoretical adversary before they're able to field the soldiers with the various characteristics you just noted. And so, you know, if they are ever able to field it. And so what, uh, you know, I argue, but I do acknowledge this is, drawing conclusions across a very wide set of technical data. So I encourage others to draw their own conclusions. But my own reading of the data is that in the near and long term, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, in the near and medium term, the national security advantage is most likely to lie in mechanical extensions of human capability, if you will. I think one of the characteristics you noted that you wanted your super soldier to have was super strength. And as I look at it, based on my understanding of the technologies, it's a much higher confidence bet that we can get a US super soldier that's super strong more quickly and more confidently by using something like a robotic exoskeleton. And I think if I want to have supervision, I think it's much more likely and more confident that we could get that capability by using, you know, augmented reality headsets. So I think as we look at the near and the midterm, the national security benefits are more confidently and more likely to be derived from these sort of mechanical extensions of human capability that were really very much, we've completed the discovery, if you will, and now it's largely an engineering challenge to, you know, build those robotic exoskeletons and figure out very technical problems and get them deployed. And that's where I would have folks focus. I promise that we'll get back to the scientific side in a minute, but just to pursue <laughs> the, the military equation, the way I've always thought about this is your options for enhancing combatant performance are hardware like exoskeletons, drugs, which we've used now since at least World War II. Not we, but the world has used. And then finally, genetic manipulation. 
And what you're saying is in terms of cost, they're all roughly the same. Uh, in terms of feasibility, it might be preferable to use hardware for a start. Is that is that a fair characterization or? Yeah, I think that's the, be the better gamble for the Pentagon to take in the near and midterm. But I think it's essential that the U.S., you know, as I've noted before, have a healthy domestic sector in legitimate uses of this technology, mm -hmm. because it may, it may never be useful for enhancements that would be of interest to you as a national security expert. There's still a lot of question as if it would be able to give you capabilities that you could not achieve through mechanical extensions. But if we discover, if we discover that it can't, that's great. We're you know we're 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 having a lot of beneficial effects on medical and technological and economic aspects of the U.S. economy. If you find out in the midterm that it's looking more promising for national security purposes, then maybe your norms are strong. Maybe the strategic environment is relatively benign. So you can kind of rely more on detectors mm -hmm. or uh, countermeasures. And maybe frankly, you find yourself where you need to take more other steps. And mm -hmm. at that point though, the you'll have a healthy domestic sector, which would in this future time, you would be able to effectively move to using the technology in other ways. And I don't honestly think the rate of advance, I mean, I think the rate of advance would probably be worse if you mm -hmm. made this at this very early nascent, but still meaningful stage of the technology. If you made it resident within the national security community, I think you would get worse technical outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I think you're far better I think in the near and midterm, DOD should focus on mechanical extensions. The biotechnology community should pursue this technology in all its manifestations, in all its legitimate manifestations. And recall there's gene therapy, which is not heritable. Gene therapy is done to children and adults after the cells have differentiated so the prospect of enhancing potential is not there, merely the prospect of correcting liver cancer or correcting heart problems. Heritable human genome editing is done in the, in the egg or sperm or embryo at very early stages of development prior to differentiation. And it's only that early stage manipulation, which has this prospect of increasing genetic potential. One thing that, stay on the DOD for a minute, but begin to shift out. You talked about secrecy is actually a drawback in this case. And that this goes, I think, beyond purposeful manipulation. The, the U.S. would be better served by having a strategy of rapid adaptability. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because it has implications for all kinds of technology. Yes, I really, I, I grew up in DOD. I have tremendous regard for the, the, the people and the programs. And DOD has an incredible record of technical accomplishment. But I do, like many other folks looking at DOD, I'm really troubled that it's failing to effectively incorporate cutting edge technologies. And I think that 
a big reason for that is that there have been profound changes in technology, in its source, in its nature, and in its pace. And I think all of those characteristics of the technology are really making the current DOD science and technology ecosystem, uh, you know, it's just profoundly different from what it's confronted in the post-World War II period and as worthy and meaningful and talented as that system was earlier in the post-World War II period, it just no longer matches the characteristics of technology or many of the technologies that we're trying to incorporate. So let me talk about what I mean by, you know, source, nature, and pace. So, you know, the U.S. still leads in a lot of these areas in terms of discovery, but the margin by which it leads is narrowing. And there are now some areas, you know, still relatively narrow, but there are some areas where, um, uh, you know, other countries are starting to lead in technology. And so really the, the motive for or the source of most of this technological advance is a, is a global commercial and academic sector. And I think it's really, and, and DOD, the, and particularly the classic DOD S&T ecosystem is not you know, well tied into that global commercial and academic sector, which is really generating these cutting edge advances uh, in computers and biotechnology and nanotechnology and so many of the technologies of defense relevance. So then the source, the nature of these technologies is also different in many ways. They're not characterized by big capital investments. It's, it, it, you know, many of them, you know, the classic sort of, uh, you know, the hacker in the garage, you know, it's, it's uh, somebody on their computer coming up with the next great phishing attack. It's an, even in biotech, it's most of the technical advances in biotech are characterized by small startups, which once they pass their sort of innovative stage are then purchased by larger companies for the production, you know, for, to get the product through clinical trials and to produce You, you it. need to explain this to Senator Klobuchar. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, but that's a really, really different. I mean, that is not putting a lot of people on a mountain in New Mexico. That, you know, that's, so it's very small organizations. And then the pace is extraordinarily rapid. And so I think all of these things characterize these cutting edge, not all technologies, but many of these cutting edge technologies that are of high defense relevance. And the existing DOD S&T ecosystem is not, is not well suited to that. And so I think DOD in these technology areas really needs to shift from trying to generate the technologies or replicate the technologies within its own ecosystem and instead strengthen its ability to, you know, benefit sort of in real time from a healthy domestic sector. And then I think is important in many of these areas, but it's especially important in the biotechnologies because DOD for historical reasons is particularly weak in the biotechnologies. It just has not been as relevant to defense purposes as physics, you know, every, you know, a lot of senior DOD people are physicists. That's great. They're, you know, fabulous technologists, but, you know, but the way the technologies are changing, we, we, we need more of a biological expertise and we just don't have as deep a bench in this area. 
maybe to go off course a little bit, I want to come back to databases. You know, I haven't mm -hmm. talked about secrecy. I because that's crucial. There's a number again relevant to a lot of technologies, but so I agree with you completely. A global commercial and academic sector is the source of innovation and new technology now. And a lot yeah. of these cases, yeah. and the yeah. reason I think we need to shift, you know, and I'm not saying get rid of secrecy. Some things do right. need to be secret. Well, but I really I don't need to totally run into the bus saw. <laughs> so I think you want to shift away from secrecy and toward rapid adaptability. I mean, in the bio area, you know, anthrax is very well suited for use by an adversary. You know, it's it's relatively lethal, it's quite robust in the environment. And so for a long time, we've been working on an anthrax vaccine, but new technologies make it much easier to slightly modify a pathogen. And, but you know, if, if all we have is a perfectly tailored anthrax vaccine to the natural strain, that's not gonna protect us against the slightly modified version. And so that's an example of why I think we need to be willing to get to, to accept that the big benefit is, is going to be rapid adaptability and be prepared to accept some loss of secrecy to uh, have access to cutting edge technologies to be able to adapt to the pathogen that actually emerges either from nature or from an adversary or frankly to you know adapt i mean you can see the same kind of phenomenon in computer in cyber attacks mm -hmm you know, having a, you know, a robust protection against the classic attack is not going to help you because there's always another zero day coming. And the name of the game is to rapidly detect the attack and then be able to defend against it. So that's why I think you do, uh, you know, not across the board, but I think DOD needs to really shift toward, in many of these technologies, away from secrecy and toward rapid adaptability. It's a more, I think, promising way to defend itself in the future. So we have to mention China, because when you said global commercial and academic sector, China's benefited immensely from being part of that. And both for their own reasons and for our reasons, we started to disconnect them. When you think about China, when one thinks of Chinese S&T, it's very government centric and they've squashed the commercial sector. What does this say about China? And what does this say about what we ought to do about China? We can look at this specific technology, genetic manipulation, but it, again, it has broader implications. I, I think that's a very good question. I think you're going to have to manage it a little bit as we see these relationships evolve. Artificial intelligence is a good, is an interesting case because really the uh, sources of excellence in AI are. China and the United States, and then there's sort of a talented outpost in Canada. And so, you know, I don't know if there's, I, I do think we have to be very sensitive to, you know, China being an aggressive strategic competitor. But I also think we have to recognize that there are some areas where, particularly in AI, my understanding is there are some slivers of AI where they are starting to and, and advance beyond our capabilities. So I think, I think you have to look at this carefully in a case-by-case -case way, but I would be inclined to keep the academic world as open as possible. Mm -hmm. but, I, I, but again, I say that as a, a national security person who's very suspicious of, of other countries. Sure. 
But I think you just have to, you know, there are areas of technology where no longer dominant. In the biotechnologies also, one of the things that's very worrisome is we, you know, we talked about the data, you know, we alluded to the importance of the databases. You know, as you know, you know, artificial intelligence is a very large category with many technical strategies to have computers perform human-like functions of very sophistication. The only one of those strategies that is widely used outside of research venues is machine learning. So it's kind of a, a sub, subset of artificial intelligence, but it's the one that's really used out in the world. Machine learning is trained on databases and it looks at enormous databases and is able to make predictions or find subtle correlations. And it's really going to be a principal tool for innovation as we look to the future. So I think the United States has really got to recognize that and recognize that large, well-curated databases are need to become a strategic priority for the United States. And it's, you know, and I talked previously about how the trajectories are worrisome. The size of the genomic databases available to different countries is a really good example of that. China has an enormous genomic database. Obviously, it has a very large population. It's been consolidate, it's been collecting and consolidating genomic data and some public health records from its population, which alone makes it quite large. But also the a director of national intelligence has released a couple documents that says that in multiple cases, U.S. healthcare providers are using Chinese sequencers to sequence the DNA of U.S. citizens, and that they believe China is very aware of the potential utility of all of that genomic information for precision medicine and for the development of therapeutics and and other advances in the biotechnologies. And so China is being quite systematic about building up a large genomic database. The United States really has not been. Our policy is very worthy. You know, I think the emphasis we've placed on patient privacy is valuable and should be preserved. I think the U.S. values on informed consent are worthy and should be preserved. But when I talk to experts in uh, databases, they say that there are ways that you could build a large database and use various computer techniques to kind of, you know, scramble the data or manage the data in various ways that would maintain uh, privacy, but would enable the precision medicine and life science research community in the United States to advance. Uh, right now, we have very small databases, and that's going to really be a constraint as we look to the future. You thought databases were so important, you devoted an entire chapter to it, right? So yeah. what would you say the gist of it is? You recommended an ombudsman and thinking well, about laws. What do we need to do? Well, I make three, three recommendations. Again, fundamentally, all guided by this, that it's essential that there be a recognition that uh, large, well-curated databases are a, a strategic interest in this era of artificial intelligence. First, given my focus on the biotechnologies, 
I think you've got to, you know, work with data experts and you've got to work with, you know, various medical experts to, to put together large databases for research purposes that are faithful to privacy, faithful to informed consent for research, but do allow large machine learning advances in precision medicine and in therapeutics. So that's going to be, you're going to have to look at the the HIPAA data, the patient privacy, the health records, the genomes. And you also want to figure out a technique to entice pharmaceutical companies to share their databases. Mm. They have very large databases on uh, various chemical compounds that were candidates for drugs, which they then screened against in vivo or in vitro human data. And so it would give us a lot of data about works and what doesn't. And that information is also critical for these databases. So I think you need to have a, a major effort to build large genomic databases that are faithful to national values of privacy. And I'm not a, you know, a database expert, but, but I've been assured that there are uh, useful techniques to do that in a way that's faithful to national values. Where does this where does this fit in? So one of the things that's come up repeatedly, at least for me, is we we are much further along in the application and use of this technology than many people realize. And some of that means we're going to have to think about how do you how do you familiarize the public? How do you make them comfortable with it? How do you get policymakers to approach this in a in a in a reasonable way? The cheap trick that I would use is we know Congress because they're all old, uh, they love healthcare, right? So that way, hey, that worked for NIH under Newt Gingrich, right? So what what would you do to sell that? What would you do? The, I'm not making that up. Um, what would you do to sell that to the the? I think it's worked for NIH under everybody, not just Newt Gingrich. <laughs> Well, it's been a great trick. And for years, they had uh, the funding for life sciences versus hard sciences. It was a multiple difference. And uh, I usually attribute it started under Gingrich. So I usually attribute it to him. But we're, we're facing a similar problem, right? You have a technology that people don't understand that can sound very spooky, but also offers real benefits. And we'll need to make decisions on data, on research, on privacy what would you recommend as a way to start putting this in front of the American public? Well, my, my second recommendation is you're going to have to have some new organizational models. I guess as I talk to the people out at the national labs and at some research organizations, you probably want to get this out of the government with all due respect to both of us having spent most of our careers in the government. But so you're going to want to enable the creation of sort of nonprofit consortiums maybe the national labs, maybe research universities. So you're going to have to create some new organizational models that enable sort of nonprofit organizations that would be responsible for, you know, assuring that the, 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 the uh, database techniques did assure privacy, that, that assured that the data was used for specified research purposes. But you're going to have to enable deeper involvement by the private sector because... You know, if you think of a, a lot of different databases, they each data, each small database is built with different definitions. Mm -hmm. And so then if I want my large database, you kind of think you could just pour it all in and it would work great. And it turns out that is absolutely not the case. 
And so it's very complicated to resort all the data so that you can combine 30 little databases with their own definitions into one large, well-curated database that actually is gonna be meaningful. And most of the expertise for doing this is in the private sector. This is a burgeoning industry in this era of machine learning. So uh, Lawrence Livermore Labs, for example, has done some really interesting work trying to get these databases put together, but they've had a terrible time they had, anyway, this is a long story, but they had to use a CRADA and do all kinds of crazy things with it because they, want, mm. they wanted to get data from GSK, which is a large pharmaceutical. And so I right. had the screening data. They wanted to use some patient data, but this they never could quite surmount. And then they're a nonprofit organization, so they had to use it. So as we've talked to people, I think you're going to need to create new organizational models. And so it may be in the process of creating those models, you could say, you know, this is, you know, respond, this is under a, you know, respected nonprofit, and then have them talk to, it. I will confess, I don't diminish the difficulty of this, though, you know, I've been working on this report, as you know, for the last, you know, year and a half, and every time there's an argument about the vaccines, I mm -hmm. despaired of ever being able to explain to anyone why, these genomic databases, which I know sound creepy, oh, yeah. would, not, would not really threaten them. And I think I could be wrong, but I think getting them out of the government would help also, you know, get, you know, creating these new yeah. organizational models where it's not NIH, which I think, you know, is great, but, but a, a, a research consortium or a nonprofit, you know, one of the most, one of the best examples of a useful genomic database is the UK Biobank, mm -hmm. which has a large number. It's very high quality. And that's actually a non, is a nonprofit that was set up for that purpose. Mm -hmm. And so it's adjacent to, but not part of the National Health Service. The Brits so, are good at that. They, they do, that's one of their standard tricks and they do it better than us. Set up and have the government set up a nonprofit. So maybe that's a good strategy. And I do think, you know, I, you know, the NIH has this all of us, which was envisioned as being the sort of research database. And, you know, I've tried to, it just has not been super duper successful. And I, I've tried to learn as much as I could about it. I haven't entirely diagnosed, you know, why. And I do wonder if part of it is being part of the government. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, we're, people are just uncomfortable yeah. with that. So my hope is that these new organizational models, creating nonprofits of, of various sorts that nevertheless could have private sector technical contributions, which would be critical to make it work, you know, might create a structure that would make people more comfortable. And then the final thing I called for, so the first thing is, you know, sort of fixing the rules around the data I need for biotechnology. Second, creating these new organizational models, which are currently a real problem, forestalling progress. And then third, I call for a creation of a data ombudsman. And the reason I do that is because of this issue that data is a strategic priority in this era of artificial intelligence. And that's just so you have someone relatively senior in the government. And I'm not saying that'll solve everything, but right now you don't have, I was talking to a researcher out at one of the national labs who wants to try to do this thing about distilling lithium from mm -hmm. coal ash. And they can't get, they know work has been done on this, but they just can't get the data. 
And, you know, if you work in government, you know how this will make you crazy. It's hard enough to find out who has the data and then get, then getting access to the data is a whole other thing. And frankly, nobody really cares. I mean, it's, it's you, you know, the, that research you're trying to do to the lithium project cares. And if you sort of stand back, you can definitely say it's in the United States, you know, national security interest to have greater access to lithium. But between you know, the president saying, yeah, that would be a good thing. And this poor researcher, nobody between them cares to help them actually get access to the data. And so I think if you could have a senior level person somewhere in the government that this poor researcher could go to and say, I, you know, I know that this professor did this research for the DOE. You know, if, if you could have some organization in the executive branch whose job was to receive requests for data and then do due diligence on getting access to it. I mean, there are some good reasons why data sets should not be made available, but at least you'd have, you know, again, I, I, I just yeah. talked to some researchers who are so frustrated and what they're trying to do is unambiguously in the nation's interest, but it's basically hopeless. And this was just an attempt to try to create somebody whose job was to be a facilitator for requests for data that makes sense, that are in the national interest. Yeah, I, I was a little skeptical of that one because the Obama administration was really good at creating grand-sounding titles related to <laughs> digital dinosaur core or something, tech envoys. Um, and it didn't, it never worked because they weren't actually attached to any authorities. You know, frankly, this the scope of this report is quite large. And so I, I, you know, one of the things I have to confess is I don't know exactly which laws you would need to change. I, I, one of the things I discovered as I tried to talk to people who were experienced in these days, actually, I completely rewrote this chapter mm-hmm. because I had, I had a top-down solution, which if you worked in the White House, you figure... <laughs> If I create a national office for Woozy Hudson, it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. And then I talked to people, and each of these data sets have this incredibly idiosyncratic story. You know, it's it, and so what I I was humbled after talking to a lot of researchers <laughs> that I don't think there is. It it doesn't appear to be a top down problem. It's a top-down strategic priority, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it is in the nation's interest to facilitate the creation of large databases so the nation can benefit from artificial intelligence. Each of these database problems was peculiarly idiosyncratic. And so that's why I kind of actually rewrote the chapter. So now it doesn't have the government saying, hey, let's create a database on lithium. Mm-hmm. It's instead you're relying on researchers to say, hey, this seems like an important topic. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems very promising and amenable to a machine learning approach. Let me talk to friends and do a little bit of research and find out what data there might be. You know, and then they can appeal to this perhaps office that reports to OSTP mm-hmm. and get access to the data. But the thing I learned in doing my research is it's very, very idiosyncratic. And it's, I think, much better to have it be bottom up than top down. Mm-hmm. But they can't, a bottom up approach is not going to free up the, the data. We're almost out of time. 
And so I have two final questions. One is probably too long, but it's, you talk about talent pipeline. So where do we stand on that? What should we do to improve it? So I also have a chapter about useful molecules. Recall yeah. I talked about strategies for DOD to get more direct access to a healthy domestic sector because of the changes in the source and nature and pace of technology. So that's one mm -hmm. part. Then I talk about heritable human genome editing. The U.S. has to have a healthy capability in that area. Mm -hmm. I talk about databases. We have to recognize that that's a strategic priority. If we don't, our tech sector is going to wither over time because machine learning is a key um, uh, tool of innovation in this technological mm -hmm. era. And the final thing is useful molecules. I talked about how, how important they can be, how versatile they are. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really critical. This is an area where the United States has really led in discovery but is in a way that's somewhat classic for us, we've fallen a little bit behind in actually applying the innovation. And this is a very, potentially very profitable. And I think it's gonna be a, a very Im, Im, important uh, industry. So I call for the US government to host some grand challenges because I think the technology is really at the place where you can do that. You know, all the capabilities are there and you just need to motivate them being pulled together. Mm -hmm. And so you could identify one of these molecules to serve a public purpose like climate mitigation, you know, rendering toxic chemicals inert. You could do a couple, you could just do one. But then as part of the grand challenge, it would catalyze, you know, you'd have to create a database to enable the, the creation of the molecule. So, I, you know, I encourage them to fund some nonprofit to do that. So you could start, you know, testing the process of how a nonprofit would do that, how they would bring specific problems up to the OSTP or an executive branch agency to get help, to get access to needed data. So you could really, I think, gain a lot of process insights about the difficulty of developing a database. You would, again, get process insights about the database creation and also about the evaluation process. There is an existing process to evaluate this, the safety of genetically modified organisms. You'd have a senior level group of scientists to, to watch that review process and see if it's adequate or if changes need to be made. Boy, good luck talking to the Europeans on that one. Well, I got enough problems at home before I try to take my reforms abroad. Then third, there'd be funding for semifinalists to build a biofoundry. Biofoundries are, mm -hmm. the term is evocative of steel foundries, but obviously what you're manipulating are living materials to build these, you know, specified molecules. I think we need to get to assure that we have a critical supply chain of biofoundries in the United States. Mm -hmm. So perhaps each of the semifinalists could be funded to build a biofoundry mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. enable their further participation in the grand mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. And then they also should get some funding for technical staff at all levels. So the, the semifinalists should get funding for apprenticeship programs for technical lab staff. They should get some funding for undergraduates and graduates. And then the executive branch agency running the grand challenge should evaluate how those worked, if that program worked well for talent, if it got this, the biofoundry, the staff they needed, then we should you know, expand those programs 
If they don't work, they should figure out why and come up with a new idea. And then the fifth thing is that the organizations that were the semifinalists or the finalists in the Grand Challenge, some of their technical staff would need to interact with the State Department to help the State Department understand uh, the technical issues around biofoundries, around useful molecules. And we should ensure that we're participating more actively in international standard setting efforts. The U.S. has been somewhat absent in recent international standard setting efforts and new technologies. This is, you know, very unwise. It's very important that the State Department be more energetic in staffing these. And frankly, that there be appropriate funding to get technical experts involved. Uh, I know that technical experts probably won't like going to these meetings, but, it, it, you know, the, the Foreign Service officers are terrific at this kind of thing, but you've got to get them access to the right people. So the the folks who are the finalists in these grand challenges will We'll have to send some people to talk to foreign service officers and and create some relationships so the FSOs can do can represent U.S. interests, both large companies and small companies effectively in these standard setting organizations. And that's quite important. So I think this these grand challenges could get a useful molecule produced for Mm -hmm. an important public purpose. And then I think it would also give the executive branch agencies running and overseeing the grand challenge, really useful insights to shape policy going forward on how we create databases, how, you know, or how does the executive branch facilitate the creation of the needed databases? How do we, do we leave or do we change the process for sharing the safety of the molecules? Uh, we'll get some funding out to get some biofoundries built. We'll get some funding out to create talent pipelines to make to uh, staff those biofoundries. And we'll also get some connections made so the Foreign Service can do an effective job uh, representing this industry at international standard setting. So I think right. it's critical that the policy framework, the trajectories in each of these areas be altered because the playing out of current trajectories will leave the United States in a bad place, I think, particularly vis-a-vis China in this critical technology, which has important defense implications, but also important economic, public health, and technological implications for the long-term safety of the United States. Great. Carol, we're out of time. It's been a (laughs) fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.